Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Been having some, some trouble with this iPad. Just, I don't know if any of you guys have had the new update, but you have to have the, you know, the thumbprint. Um, but if you don't have the iPad that has the ability to do that, then it doesn't open. So, anyways, uh, well, my name is Brian Lamb, and if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I hope I get to. I have the honor of serving here as pastor of community and missions, and it's Always a joy for me to be able to get this opportunity to come before you. Uh, Jason is here today. I know he dropped off Hudson for some babysitting this morning and went back home, but he, he came back to get him, so that was awesome. So we were, th- we're thankful, Jason. I'm just kidding. I do that all the time. So love dropping the kiddos off here and leaving. Uh, so we've got this series we've been in uh, called the, the Unstoppable Church, and, and we've been looking through the book of Acts, and so today... We're going to be in Acts 24, and so if you would turn in your Bible to Acts 24 with me. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can get the one that's underneath the seat, and we'd encourage you to take that home with you as a free gift. And so in Acts 24, we're going to see is where the Apostle Paul has his first Roman trial. And this is after being ambushed in the temple, arrested, and then put in prison. We saw last week that Paul, as he's in prison, uh, that there's these 40 men who vow to not eat or drink till they kill Paul. And, and so they want to, to murder Paul, and they're going to try to overthrow this Roman guard as he's in prison. And so in the middle of the night, Paul gets transferred with about 470 Roman guards uh, to Caesarea so that he can stand trial before the governor, Felix. And so that's where we're at today. And this is going to be the, the first of two trials where Paul will stand before these high-ranking Roman authorities, governors, and give an account. And something really amazing is actually happening at this point in the story of the unstoppable church. If you remember back in Acts 9, the Lord speaks over Paul's life, and he says that that he is going to be his chosen instrument, God's chosen instrument, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and their kings, and that he would suffer many things for the sake of the gospel. And as we've been looking through this series, we've seen like that's come true. God's been faithful to that. As he has spoken before many Gentiles, as he's established Gentile churches, and he has suffered many things for the sake of the gospel. But what we're seeing today in Acts 24 is just another part of this fulfillment as he goes before the first of these two Roman governors, these Gentile kings in a way, if you will. And so what this shows us is that what we're reading today, it's not really about Paul. See, the unstoppable church is what it is, not because Paul's this beast of a guy who can handle whatever comes his way, or that Jesus chose the best and the brightest to lead his church, but it's solely because of the power of the gospel to transform sinners into the likeness of Jesus that makes the unstoppable church what it truly is. And so we're going to have all of this in our minds, and we're going to dive into Acts 24. I hope you guys are ready. We're going to read the full story, and then we'll come back and we'll break it down. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts 24 says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But... To detain you no further, I I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, 
one that stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make these accusations, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say that what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he, went and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is a lot, right? Um, but I think it really helps us gain a full understanding of kind of what's going on here. And so we're going to come back and we're going to break parts of this down. And so what we just read in Acts 24 is the account of this trial, this court case that happened between the Apostle Paul and then the Jews who sent down the high priest Ananias uh, with some elders. And they had this spokesman or this lawyer named Tertullus. And so on one side of the courtroom is these men who have this, this, these high positions of Jewish authority, and uh, they've traveled five days just to see this case over Paul. They've got their hotshot lawyer, Tertullus, who we saw in the story was very smooth and suave with his speech. He's familiar with the Roman law and, and the justice system and how that game is played. Yet on the other hand of the courtroom, we have Paul, who has no representation, recently ambushed. His life was in danger from these men's followers. He had been imprisoned because of these men, and he was transferred during the middle of the night for his own safety. And so I don't know about you, but 
But I can feel the tension as this trial begins. I can only imagine what is in Paul's mind as he's thinking through these accusations that are coming up against him. So we see in verse 3, if you'll look there with me, that the Jews' lawyer, Tertullus, he, he begins his prosecution of Paul. But he begins with this, this flattery of Felix, calling him most excellent and, and praising him for the reforms and the peace that he's established. Much like my, my four-year-old, is, she's wanting something and I say no, and she goes, but Daddy, I love you so much. I love you. I'm like, yeah, Emma, I know. I love you too. But Daddy, I love you. Except what we see here is that Tertullus is laying on a lot thicker than Emma because all of what he's saying about Felix is, is really actually wrong. It's cheap. It's, it's, not, it's not true. And so instead of peace and reform, Felix was actually well known for corruption. Felix was known for oppression towards those who opposed him. And, and there's this general disdain from the Jewish people towards Felix. So, so not what you would call most excellent as the one who establishes peace and, and, and in your kindness, please hear us, right? And so what we see is that not only is Tertullus trying to sway Felix before he ever comes to what Paul did, but he also comes in here and he makes these exaggerated false accusations against Paul. And so after his empty praise, he gives these accusations. There's no evidence whatsoever, but then Paul when he begins to speak, it's, it's very different. There, there's a different demeanor, a different attitude, and he's essentially unfazed by all of what's gone on before and all of what's going on around him. We see that, that Paul, he, he doesn't jump in and object to these false accusations, but he patiently waits till Felix gives him the nod. We see in verse 10 that Paul doesn't use all the pomp and circumstance to puff up the judge as Tertullus did, but he simply acknowledges Felix's authority and he, makes, he says that he's grateful for the opportunity to make his defense. And so in this trial, Paul is accused of three crimes. And the first accusation we see in verse 5, if you'll look there with me. In this accusation, Tertullus accuses Paul of being a plague that stirs up riots around the world amongst the Jews. I first read that and I was like, oh man, he just called him a plague? Wow. It just got real. Like the gloves are off in this court trial case, right? I mean, it's just a plague. Like think about that. And, and then think about what he's saying after that. Like, like what Tertullus is doing here is he's trying to paint Paul as like this worldwide terrorist, saying he's starting these riots not just in Jerusalem but all throughout the world amongst the Jews. And, and since Rome considered themselves the rulers of the world, this would have really struck a nerve with Felix because it's painting Paul as this political threat to the Roman authority. And so Paul responds in verse 11, if you look there with me, and he responds to his first accusation by giving an, an account of his actions in Jerusalem, saying, I've only been there 12 days. And if we remember the story back from Acts 21 to here, we remember that, that most of the time in those 12 days in Jerusalem was spent in either the temple or in Roman custody because of the assault that came about upon him by the Jews in Asia. He says then in verse 12 that the, the reason for him going to the temple was not to stir up riots, nor was it to talk with anybody. Really, it was to worship God. And so therefore, he's saying here, I, I didn't dispute with anybody in the temple. I didn't do it in the synagogues. I didn't even do it in the city. And then in verse 13, Paul states that just, there's zero proof for this. Go find the evidence that says that I've been doing these things. 
Then we get to the second charge brought up against Paul at the end of verse 5, if you'll travel back there with me. And he's given this title as the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. The Nazarene sect is referring to those who follow Jesus of Nazareth. And so in a way, this is, this is true. Paul is a major leader of the Christian faith. But see, what Tertullus was doing is he was trying to twist it. He was trying to tie it into that first charge, making it seem like that this uh, Nazarene sect was this uh, very dangerous and rebellious group towards Rome. And so he's not only making an accusation against Paul here, but he's accusing the church of Jesus Christ. And in all this, what he's really trying to do is point out that, that Paul doesn't have any affiliation whatsoever with the Jews. Because under Roman law, it's illegal to form an unauthorized religious sect. And so Paul responds to this charge in verses 14 and 15. But this is where it gets interesting because his defense becomes his witness of Christ. His proclamation of the gospel. And so he begins to proclaim Jesus, the the way to this courtroom. And and Paul does this in a way where he doesn't deny his affiliation with this uh, Nazarene sect, but he corrects what it is as he states that it's really the fulfillment of all of the Jewish religion. He states the similarities and the commonalities of the Jewish religion as it transforms into the way. Paul shows that they both believe in worship of the God of their fathers. They both believe in all that's written in the law and in the prophets. They both believe that there's to be hope in God. They both believe even in the, in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. But what he's saying here is that the way is actually the fulfillment of all those things. It's what the Jews have been hoping for because of the resurrection of Christ. And so at the same time that he's refuting these charges of starting this illegal uh, religious sect, he's not ashamed to say, I belong to the way. I belong to Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And the third and final charge against Paul is found in verse 6, if you'll look there with me, where he is, uh, this is a religious crime. He's accused of desecrating the temple. And if this were true, the Jews would actually have a case. They would. Um, And so the Romans have given the Jews authority over temple matters. And so Paul, again, though, denies this in verse 17, if you'll travel back to 17. It's probably the last time you've got to travel everywhere. So, And and what he says here is that, that he went to the temple not to defile it, but actually to give an offering towards it. In verse 18, he shows that even when he entered to give his offering, that he adhered to the ceremonial law of cleanliness. He says, I was purified before entering the temple out of respect to these Jewish people and their customs, showing I didn't have any intent to start up a riot. That wasn't me. That was them. And saying, I I just came to worship. I came to worship at the temple. And, And there's no evidence to contradict that. And so even though Tertullus is good at playing the Roman justice system, he, know, he knows how to smooth talk a judge. He, he knows how to exaggerate all the accusations. He, he painted Paul as this threat to Rome and to the Jews. But yet Paul still successfully shows that this whole trial is bogus. There's zero credibility to these accusations. There's zero proof, zero evidence. However, we see that at the end of it, there's an, actually an unjust outcome, even though all that's true. 
And so Felix, who has this accurate knowledge of the way, as it says, meaning he knew Paul was telling the truth. He knew that Paul was no threat to the Romans or the Jews. It says that he decides to delay his decision till Lysias, the tribune, comes down. And, and that brother must have gotten lost or something because he never shows up in the story. Like, we don't, you keep you go all the way to Acts 28. He's still not anywhere to be found. And so what we see is that Paul just remains in prison. But something very interesting happens as Paul's in prison towards the end of the story in Acts 24 is that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, become intrigued with Paul. And so they want to visit him. And, and, and the interesting thing about this is, is that Paul doesn't take that moment to appeal his case before Felix, does he? But it says that he preached to them about faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 24, it says that he reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Which are some pretty bold topics to talk with the guy who can decide whether you live or die. Right? And so Felix becomes alarmed. He's alarmed by this. He sends Paul away. But yet throughout Paul's time in prison, he continues to send for Paul, wants to talk and converse, not, not really to hear about the gospel, but he wants to hope, he's hoping that Paul's going to bribe him in some way to get released. And yet Paul never takes the bait. And so I think this shows us that, that Paul did not use this interest of Felix for his own personal gain, but he used this as a moment to preach the gospel to him. Not words of flattery, not faith without repentance, nor cheap grace, but that a faith and a trust in Jesus leads to the repentance of sins, to righteousness before God. And for whatever reason, Felix didn't want to hear that. And so that didn't stop Paul, though, did it? And so two years passes away, finally, and uh, Felix is replaced, and Paul is still in prison, and you'll find out the rest of the story next week. And so while there's a lot going on here, uh, and, and we can easily see and get caught up at Paul and just be like, man, this, this cat is just crazy, right? I mean, he's, he's being accused of all these things, and he, he doesn't, like, go crazy to everybody. Like, he just stands there, and he takes it, and he proclaims the gospel, and we can just start thinking, man, man this Paul guy sure is the hero of this story, and if we do that, though, we're going to miss the point of the actual story. See, this story was not written so that we would stand back and be in awe of Paul, but it was given to us as this, this beautiful illustration of the power of the gospel, this beautiful illustration of the transforming work of the gospel in Paul's life, and to show us that it's that power that's behind the unstoppable church. It's not Paul himself. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at just what the transforming work of the gospel does in our lives and getting some examples here from Paul. And so in verse 16, if you'll look there with me, Paul says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And so if we remember uh, at the beginning of Acts 23, Paul makes that same statement as he's before the Jewish council. But here he's repeating himself as he's now before the, the Roman court. And, and what he's trying to get at here with this statement is the fact that, that I've been transformed. I, I'm a new creation in Christ. I believe in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for me. Therefore, my conscience is clear, and my defense is not my innocence, but my defense is Jesus Christ. And so he's saying here, my hope does not rest in the justice of man. It doesn't rest in the Romans or the Jews, but it rests in the justice of God because that is pure and that is perfect. So in this time, he's able to hold on to the ultimate 
judge of this trial. And, and this is also evident in the fact that Paul knew the, the whole time why he's on trial. He's not an idiot. He knows. He understood the deeper meaning behind all of this. He knows he's not on trial for these baseless charges. He says it at the end of his defense in verse 21. He says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In this statement, Paul's showing everybody in the court that the only real charge before him is the fact that he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he's on trial. That's why they want him dead. That's, they they, they want to stop this movement of the gospel, even to the point, get this, of where they're ready to murder Paul, thus breaking their own laws. That's how much they want him stopped. And I like to think Paul's just kind of sitting back, listening to all these baseless accusations and all these crazy things that's being said about him, and, and all of those are there just to stop him from proclaiming Jesus. And when it's his turn, he kind of like looks at him and winks, nods at him. He's like, thanks for the setup, guys. Watch this. Boom, Jesus. Right? Because that's what he does here. See, it's the transforming work of the gospel in Paul's life to, to, about the, for the fact that even though he's wanted dead for Jesus, he still strives to resemble Jesus. And he proclaims Jesus, the one who they want him dead for, as his own defense. And so if you think about yourself in a situation like this, what would you be doing? What would you be holding on to? in the midst of injustice, being on trial for something you, you didn't do or being accused of things that didn't happen, maybe at work or maybe in a relationship, would you be allowing the truth of the gospel to inform your life or would you be looking for the easy road out? Because Paul had many easy roads out of all this, yet he never took any of them. He didn't view this as a moment for him. He viewed this as a moment to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. And so would you have had that resolve? To not take the easy road? Or would you have been outraged at this and thrown insults back at your accuser? Maybe would you have bribed the judge? I think a lot of us, if we're true, are saying, yeah, there's a part of me. That old part of me definitely would have done that stuff. That person that I was before, Jesus, definitely would have done that. And so the answer to this question is not, are you as good as Paul? But the answer to this question is, are you being transformed by Jesus? Is Jesus, is the power of the gospel working in you? See, this clear conscience for Paul to rest in the gospel, it doesn't come from himself. It doesn't come from any source outside of him. It, it, it comes from the transforming work of the gospel in his life. And the same thing works inside of us today here in 2017. See, the gospel works in each of us to where it transforms us when we believe and transforms our hearts and our minds and our actions to that of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we look like him, we act like him, we proclaim him. Many of you know that my wife, Allie, and I, we have had the honor to adopt two little girls earlier this year, Isabel and Emma. If you've gotten to meet them, uh, they're, they're awesome. Love them so much. And in their little lives, they've gone through uh, probably more hurt and abuse than I ever will in my lifetime. Uh, they've been through a lot. And so it, it wasn't an easy road when we first got them, um, for them or for us. And, and, you know, we're still working on things, and we always will be working on things. But I'll, I'll never forget the transformation that happened in their hearts and in our hearts that day we stood before the judge and adopted them into our family. I'll never forget it. But it was most evident in Emma, 
our four-year-old. She's this, this little ball of charisma and charm. Uh, I love Emma. But early on, we, we had some major, major battles with her. Just nonstop tantrums, yelling, screaming, hitting things. And, and we tried everything we could to get her to stop. But she was just, she's just angry at the world. She's angry for what she had gone through. Because she didn't understand it. And, and so she's taking that out on us, right? And, and so we're like trying everything. There's no consoling her. There's no getting her to stop. There's no reasoning with her. Nothing. And, and so Allie and I, like, we'll pick, we pick her up from school. We're like, okay, is it going to be a good day, bad day, good day? Oh, bad day. Buckle in. Goodness gracious. Okay, let's do this. Like, that's how it was for months upon months. And, and so, like, this one time, you know, uh, we had tried everything we could, and she is screaming her head off. And, and so, you know, these tantrums are not because she's hurt. It's because she didn't get something she wanted, or she doesn't get to do something she wants to do, or whatever it is. So Allie and I try everything we can. Nothing's working. So we just start yelling with her. Not at her, but like mimicking her. And, and so we start yelling with her. Maybe not the best parenting tool in the toolbox to give you this morning, but <laughs> that's, that's all we, we're like, this is it. This is all we can do. And so we start yelling with her, not at her, with her, and she stops all of a sudden. I'm like, it worked. <laughs> yes. And she looks at us and she goes, um, can you stop yelling? You're hurting my ears. <laughs> okay, Emma, sure. You know what? We'll stop if you stop. And there's many more tantrums that happened after that day, and the whole yelling with her thing never worked again, and so we're out of that one, but... You know, that day that she was adopted, it was just like a completely new child happened. It just came before us. Like a switch happened. I mean, the week before the adoption, she busted Allie's lip open from punching her. Right? And so then the adoption hits, and it's like it's just this whole new child. This transformation has happened in her life. She got weeks and weeks of green days, good days at school. She'd never done that before. She, uh, you know, her accidents during the day started to slow down. And yeah, she still threw some fits. She's four. But they were no nothing like what they were before the adoption. And so we saw in her little short life just this transformation that happened when she found out that she was going to have a mommy and daddy that were there for her, that cared for her, that loved her, and that weren't going to abandon her. And, and I remember and I look back on that, that, that moment in life, and it just reminds me of the transformation that happens when we place our faith in Christ. When we realize that the God of the universe has adopted us as sons and daughters. That we have a, a seat at his table as a part of his family, as a citizen in his kingdom, heirs with Christ. That he has lavished upon us grace and forgiveness. You can't stay the same person after that's happened to you. And God is transforming us day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so... The gospel is, is working in, in, in each of us who believe in such a way to where we're, we're, we're changed. We're not who we once were. We're a new creation in Christ. And, and from this story today, we see that that's evident in Paul's life through many different things in his approach and his mindset. And so one is just found simply in the conduct and the demeanor of Paul throughout this entire trial. I mean, look at Paul's defense, his response to everything that's going on in verse 10. Like the dude's just been called a plague. And he says this, I cheerfully make my defense. This word cheerfully means 
being in fine spirits, of good cheer and courage, being well disposed, being kind. And we see this cheerful defense in in many ways, from from his patience to wait his turn to speak, to his respect of the unjust governor, to his demeanor of to not throw insults back at the Jews, even though he had probably plenty of them. See, Paul knows that his fate ultimately doesn't lie in the hands of Felix, or anyone else for that matter. But Paul knows, as he's listening to these accusations, that, that he doesn't have to react in the same way, because he knows the ultimate judge. Because he knows the author of true and eternal justice. And those that are being transformed by the gospel are able to walk through this life with cheerful conduct, with the integrity of Christ. Because they realize that that this life isn't their reward. Jesus is their reward. Therefore, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what they've gone up against, but they can still respond in kindness, with courage, and in cheer. And even in less crazy situations, less stressful situations, we can see this power of the gospel working in us, can't we? I'll make a confession real quick. I'm probably the worst about picking up my stuff around the house. Whether it's a plate or a cup or clothes, like, it's by the grace of God that Allie hasn't sent me to some sort of, like, I don't know, retreat or something for men to be able to figure out how to pick stuff up at the house. I'm not sure. Marriage, like marriage boarding school or something, right? And so... uh, but there's been times where she's graciously called me out on this. She's told me. And, and the wording that she's used a couple times is what she would say. She'd say, you, you always leave your stuff out. And I think to myself, like, I just stop in that moment. Because she's, she's not trying to, like, attack me, but yet I get in attack mode, right? I get, I get defensive, and I, and I want to argue with her. I want to say, well, actually, you know what? It's not always. It's just sometimes, so why don't you get your facts straight and back off? <laughs> Woman? But I know I'd get slapped if I did that, right? Amen. <laughs> For you single guys, never. You joke about it, but that's, that's about it. And so I, I really need to recognize in those moments that, that I've, I've, I've got to apologize, right? I, yeah, I need to work on this. Especially when the four-year-olds call me out for leaving my flip-flops in the living room, right? Like, that's just a bad day. And so from the big test all the way down to the little small ones, we can see the power of the gospel working in us to be able to not respond in our sin, but to respond with the likeness of Christ, with integrity, with cheer. And another beautiful example of this is the transforming work of the gospel. It is found as Paul, yet again, we've seen this over and over and over, but yet again, he seizes opportunities to make known the glory of Jesus Christ. In verses 14 and 15, he shows the Jews and the Gentiles in attendance about the one who is the way, as he says there. See, the Jews, they they believe in all these things that he's going to state here, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They believe that they are to worship the God of their fathers, but they didn't believe in Jesus who grants us access to him. See, they believed in all that was in the law and by the prophets, but they didn't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of them. They believed that they have hope in God, but they didn't believe in the one who secured hope for us. And they believed in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that defeated death ultimately for us. And so, see, what Paul sees here is that there's much more at stake on on this in this trial, much more than his innocence. But there's people that don't know Jesus in here. Therefore, I'm not going to preach my innocence, but I'm going to preach the gospel to these people. 
And, and even later, after this trial is over, he meets with Felix, and, and Felix had just made this unjust decision towards Paul. He's wanting a bribe, and he's the guy that decides whether he lives or dies. And, and what does Paul do? He continues to show the integrity of Christ, doesn't take the bribe. And what he does is he uses that moment as a time, as an opportunity to share the gospel with Felix. See, the gospel gives us this ability. This is what we're seeing here. It gives us this ability just to view life differently. Where we look at these moments not as opportunities for ourselves, but as opportunities to proclaim the one who is working in us, Jesus. And all around us are opportunities to proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but for whatever reason, we, we, we miss them a lot. And, and it, I don't know if it's so much that we're scared as much as we're, we may just not be looking for them. You know, there's some of us, like that person that they place their faith in Jesus and, and they start just sharing the gospel like everybody, right? Like boom, 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 just sharing the gospel with everybody, like just tricking people into conversations. Like, you know what, I had a euro with lamb meat in it the other day. Speaking of lamb, have I told you about the lamb that was slain? Like just, where did that come from? Right? And that wasn't my story. That's not my journey. I've had to grow in this part of my faith. You know, and in that, I've, I've missed some big opportunities. I remember the first time I met this one guy. Um, we were meeting for the first time. We never, we've never talked since then. Um, but I, anytime I meet somebody, I get the question. Jason knows this. You get the question, so what do you do? Right? And at that time, I was a youth minister here at Solid Rock. And so I said, you know, well, I'm a youth minister in West Fort Worth. And, and usually what happened back then and what happens now is that when they find out that we're in some sort of Christian ministry, they figure out a way to kind of end the conversation, right? Because they don't want to have the next part. But this guy was different. He, he looked at me and he's like, oh, that's, that's really cool. You know, I've never been to church. I love to go to church. To, what I, to which I responded, yeah, that's cool, man. And then nothing else. Major bust. Golden opportunity in front of me. And I totally missed it. I don't know, maybe I was just nervous because he didn't end the conversation, so I had to do it for him or something. I'm not sure. Yet there's been opportunities where, like, I've been in some tense, like, nerve-wracking situations, and I'll share something about Jesus or the gospel, and I'll think back, I'm like, I didn't even know I knew that about Jesus. Man, this power of the Holy Spirit thing really works. And so the point in all of this is that and the point that we're seeing here is that the gospel, it's not Paul, it's the gospel that's working in Paul's life. That that's what's happening. And it gives him the ability to view this moment as an opportunity to share the gospel. And the same goes for each and every one of us. We're, we're able, you and I are able to have this same courage to proclaim Jesus. God has put people in your life. He's brought about situations. He even allows you to walk through trials in order that you, as a believer, transformed by the gospel, would step into those spaces and proclaim the beauty of the gospel to those around you. That's why his church is unstoppable, isn't it? Because as the gospel transforms each of us, it empowers us to reflect this glory of Jesus throughout our lives. And as we've seen today and throughout human history, that is unstoppable. Nothing's going to stop that. Not those that oppose it, not a trial, not a judge, not even our own inabilities. And so as Jason and the worship team comes back up um, to, to bring us back into worship through song, I, I just want to ask you to take a moment. Just please, please take a moment and think, if you were a believer in here today, Think about the transformation that's happened in your life. 
Think about the work of the gospel. And if you would, maybe take some sermon notes or your phone or something and just write down some situations, some trials, some people that God has used to continue this good work that he's began in you. And and I also want to challenge all of us today to to think about and and ask God to to just grant us this power to be able to, to see the gospel to set our eyes upon the gospel, that, that we might, from this day forward, begin to act with the integrity of Christ in every situation, that we might view all these moments of life not as things for us, but as opportunities to share the joy that is inside of us. And so if you guys would pray with me. I'm going to give you a moment just to talk to God yourself. Father, we come to you today, sinners saved by your grace. that you would work in our lives to be able to to see this, this, this power of the gospel and what you're doing in our lives, this transformation that's happening, that we would not look to the old person, but we look to the new in Christ. That we would see from this story of Paul that, that we're able to respond with the same likeness of Christ as he did, with the with the same proclamation of the gospel as he did because it's the same spirit that was in him that is now residing in each of us. May you work on our hearts, Father, today. I pray for the person in here that may not know you, Father, that you would use this good news of the gospel, this, this, uh, this news of grace and forgiveness and, and, and life eternal to save them, Father, that they would place their faith in you that they would have the courage to tell somebody to be able to, to, to just hear about this beautiful process of transformation that happens as we walk through this life. Father, would you come and move amongst your people today? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.